This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show. We welcome back to the show Professor Michael Clare. Michael Clare is Professor Emeritus at Hampshire College, Peace and World Security Studies, and the defense correspondent for The Nation magazine, and a prolific author on defense issues and energy issues as well. Michael Clare, I'm so glad you could be back with us today because, well, the Ukraine, or Ukraine, is back in the news it's shocking to me that it leaves or seems to leave most of the media for days at a time. There is a war of enormous consequence going on. Many people are dying, civilians as well as people in the military. It is a matter of enormous geopolitical consequence. I will get back to this question of why we are having trouble paying attention to it on a day-to-day basis. That aside for a moment— a large article in the New York Times this morning about what Putin had to say yesterday in a major economic speech. So for those of our listeners who have missed that, bring us up to date on what is happening both politically and militarily in Ukraine today. Please, Michael Clare. Okay, Bill, thanks. Uh, What's happening uh, on the ground is that Ukrainian forces are mounting a counterattack or a counteroffensive on two fronts now, in the south uh, around the city of Kherson, which was taken by the Russians in the very beginning of the war, it now looks like uh, the Ukrainians are trying to push the Russians out of Kherson and retake that territory. But there's some speculation that this may be something of a feint, that the uh, Ukrainians uh, they have broadcast that they're going to ca- mount a counteroffensive in that area for a very long time. It's been in the news for weeks. Um, and as a consequence, Russia shifted a lot of its forces from the north and the east to the south to reinforce Kherson, uh, which is a, a highly exposed area for them. Now, uh, the Ukrainians have mounted a second counteroffensive in the north around the city of Kharkiv, and they appear to be making a fair amount of progress there, uh, taking advantage of the fact that Russian forces in that area were undermanned, uh, possibly because they had shifted a lot of their capacity to the south to defend Kherson. So it's unclear at this point which is the main Ukrainian offensive. Maybe they're of equal strength, we don't know, but uh, they are on the move. And uh, uh, Russian forces are struggling in both areas, uh, but they seem to be um, on the run most in the north around Kharkiv. Where does that leave the state of uh, military affairs, assuming that these counteroffenses are to some degree successful, then what? So, uh, you know, I think this is very, this is more important for Ukraine, for Zelensky, President Zelensky, than for Russia. I think there's some understanding in Europe, um, in the major capitals, uh, in Kiev, in Moscow, that uh, Russia is content, that that Putin is content to let the war roll on. Uh, He believes, uh, as that article you referred to, Bill, in the the paper today, uh, Mr. Putin appears to believe that Russia could hold out that the European, uh, the Europeans, who, which have so far remained relatively loyal, have stuck together in support of Ukraine, that as winter comes on and gas prices rise and energy supplies diminish, that the Western solidarity will crumble uh, so that he could, he could afford to hold out longer and keep on fighting. Uh, into another year or years, uh, this uh, you, the Ukrainians don't have that luxury. Uh, they need to. They don't have the reserves that Russia does, and uh, they're counting on Western support. So I think it's 
My take is that it's crucial for the Ukrainians to demonstrate a capacity to make progress now. So they're, they're putting a lot of effort into this counteroffensive, and I, I, it's very important for them to show progress. Do you make much of the public opinion polling reported in the Times this morning that Ukraine is not a uh, predominant issue for uh, most people in the United States and not an issue of enormous import for uh, people in the, well, in countries uh, that are part of the bloc that is supporting Ukraine. Does that mean that, that Putin's theory that he can win a war of attrition really does have a basis in fact? Uh, this is very hard to calculate. Uh, I think if you're speaking of the United States, obviously people are focused here on more immediate issues, the coming elections, uh, economic situation here, inflation and such like. Um, there's a whole lot of issues that, that we in this country are focused on, and Ukraine is not at the top of the list, obviously. When you're in Washington, it's another story. I just came back from Washington. I, I think there's no question that the top leadership uh, in, in, in Congress, in the executive branch, in the military, are quite determined to continue the war, uh, to continue supporting the war in Ukraine against Russia. Uh, so I, I don't worry, I wouldn't worry about a drop-off in support, U.S. support for the Ukrainian military. In fact, uh, President Biden just announced yet another multi-billion dollar package of weapons to Ukraine. And, and there's uh, bipartisan support for this in Congress. So uh, whatever the public, public is focused naturally on other issues, but, but the, the foreign policy elite is determined to persist. And I think the same is true of the European leadership is determined to persist in the support of the war. What the European leadership worries about is winter. Uh, we don't have that problem, the same problem here, because the, the U.S. is not dependent on, Europe, on Russian energy the way European countries are. The European leadership is worried that uh, as Russian energy dries up, is cut off, uh, that energy prices are going to skyrocket in, and will be in short supply this winter, and that will create a lot of social unrest. Uh, so, so th th that's a that's a bigger worry for the Europeans. But I think the leadership is determined to to plow ahead with with support for Ukraine, full full tilt. Full one tilt. one aspect of the article in today's New York Times is that what the war has done is brought Russia and China together in a way and made them those countries a united front and allies in a way that they had not been and would not be but for this war. Do you subscribe to that idea? I am a little bit dubious about that. I, I think it's a, it's a more mixed picture. I think that uh, certainly uh, Chinese uh, propaganda uh, echoes Russian propaganda, and that upsets me a great deal because Russian propaganda is so full of falsehoods. And it appears as if there might be a meeting in person between Vladimir Putin and President Xi Jinping of China coming up where they'll, you know, pat each other's back and say, yeah, good, 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 uh, strong. We're, we're strong partners and all that. But China has been careful not to violate the sanctions imposed by the U.S. and its allies. It is skirting the sanctions in many ways, but it's not openly violating them. And I think there are many in China's top leadership that are very worried uh, if China gets too close to Russia, 
uh, it will alienate uh, customers in the West, especially in Europe, and that this will be bad for the year for the Chinese economy down the line. So I think the Chinese are being very, you know, on one hand they're supporting Russia, but they're being cautious about it, and but they're not burning their bridges with the West. I'd like to turn to a matter very much in the news and at the forefront of, I think, political as well as military planners' uh, minds uh, today, and that is the nuclear plant that is in the midst of shelling and fighting in Ukraine. Is there? A, yeah. Okay. Explain that. Tell us. Tell us where that situation is and how dangerous it is, or whether it's being overblown. Uh, in, in the reporting here? Uh, there, I think there's a certain amount of sensationalism on the TV news that I watch, but it's exceedingly dangerous. There's no question about it. Uh, the plant is um, occupied by Russian forces and uh, reportedly there are Russian military forces on site even though the plant itself is being operated by its Ukrainian, uh, its Ukrainian workforce, uh, which is trying very hard to keep the plant in operation and safe, but it's under Russian occupation, so it's a problem to begin with. Um, and uh, there's a lot of radioactive wastes there, the, and uh, they're the ra and they're radioactive core to these reactors. So you need to keep uh, the, those uh, radioactive cores cooled down, and you need electricity to do that. Uh, and we've, we, if that uh, that supply of cooling energy is cut off completely the reactors could start to overheat and you could have a meltdown. Uh, that hasn't happened yet, but um, it's precarious. And if there is a meltdown, uh, then you could have the escape of radioactive gases into the atmosphere, which would be, uh, you know, catastrophic on a scale of Chernobyl. So yes, it's exceedingly dangerous. Okay, sp uh, spend another minute with us explaining. The Russian forces have control of the plant. Ukrainian workers are servicing and doing their jobs at the plant. What is the fighting around the plant about? Uh, it, it, this is an area that is very difficult for anyone to determine uh, the Ukrainians claim that Russian forces are firing artillery from the site, from, from around the plant towards Ukrainian territory, which is very close. The, the, the plant is kind of on the edge of the front line between Russian and Ukrainian territory. So uh, the Ukrainians say that the, the Russians are using the plant uh, like a hostage uh, to, to attack Ukrainian forces across the line. And the Ukrainians say they cannot retaliate for fear of hitting the plant. Nonetheless, shelling is occurring and, and artillery shells land in the vicinity of the plant. Uh, the Russians claim this is, this is coming from Ukraine. The Ukrainians say they would never attack the plant and, uh, and observers, even the UN observers said they were unable to determine where those shells were coming from. Uh, so you have to, you have to you have to make a determination about uh, who's who's most likely lying in this case. And uh, so if you ask my opinion, um, I think the Russians are more likely to lie than the Ukrainians. But uh, but that's a matter of opinion. We're speaking with Michael Clare, Hampshire College Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies, defense correspondent for The Nation magazine, prolific author on military and economic and affairs, including, of course, energy. We're going to take a quick break here, and when we come back, I'm going to ask Michael this question. What's the endgame? How can this war end? 
And is Ukraine going to actually try to take back Crimea? We'll be right back. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Five eight six one thousand. Good phone number, right? It's the number Whalen Insurance got when we opened in 1961. It's still our number more than 60 years later. If you need an insurance quote or have a claim, just call 586-1000. We answer the phone, ready to help. That's our pledge to you, until now. Now when you call, we'll answer, and if it's something clerical or routine, like an address change, we're going to transfer you to the Arbella Insurance Call Center in Quincy. You'll be connected with a real person there, too. You won't be entering your policy number on the dial pad. The Arbella Call Center. I told myself Whalen Insurance would never do this, but insurance agent friends all over New England tell me it actually works really well. So we're going to try it. And if it doesn't work well, I'm sure you'll let us know by calling 586-1000. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Arbella Insurance. A lot of mattress stores, all they talk about is price. Sale, 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 save, 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 blah, blah, blah. I get it. No one wants to pay a dollar more than you have to. But what do you really know about mattresses? Are you an expert? I'm not. And I have a furniture store. So I at least know a little. Hi, it's Robin from Talon Furniture. We mostly sell therapeutic mattresses at Talon Furniture. Not Tempur-Pedic, not trying to mislead you. Therapeutic the best mattress value I've ever found. And believe me, I've looked around. Therapeutic mattresses are made in Brockton. I've walked the floor and it was reassuring because there's no toxicity, no off-gassing. Therapeutic mattresses are clean and made by fellow Red Sox fans. Play the sale, sale, sale game if you want. That's not for me. A therapeutic mattress from Talent Furniture is your best bet and best deal. Today, tomorrow, or whenever you decide to buy a new mattress. Hi, this is Jessica from Fitness Together. I meet clients every day who tell me that as the number on their scale grew higher, their self-esteem dropped lower, and going to a traditional gym absolutely terrified them. Here at Fitness Together, we'll work with you one-on-one, either virtually or in one of our private suites in Amherst or Northampton. We'll help you set and reach your fitness goals, and most importantly, smile every time you look in the mirror. Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. Your self-worth is worth Fitness Together. It's the 14th annual Tom Kazenzi Driving for the Cure Charity Golf Tournament to support Dana-Farber Cancer Institute on September 27th at Twin Hills Country Club. To get involved, visit us online at TomKazenziDrivingForTheCure.com and together we can make a difference. The Paul Parent Garden Club, every Sunday, 6 to 8 a.m. Brought to you by Weinzick Nursery, locally owned and operated since 1954. Visit Mike, Amity, John, and the rest of the team at Weinzick Nursery, Route 9 in Hadley, and online at WeinzickNursery.com. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation about Ukraine and the war with Michael Clare, who is a Hampshire College Professor Emeritus, the Hampshire College Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies, defense correspondent for the nation and prolific author. I'd like to ask you the big question here, if I might, Michael, and it's what is the end game here? How can this war end? In other words, Russia took a piece of Ukraine some years ago. It took Crimea. It's Crimea. It seized Crimea. It uh, annexed it and made it part of Russia again. Uh, Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, has said that he is determined to take back territory that Russia has seized. That begins to sound like a war that could go on indeed for a long time. And I'm wondering what your view is, is whether there's any way that this war ends short of a military victory for Ukraine, driving out the Russians altogether, which seems to be a, almost well, a really difficult military task, or Russia winning the war and decapitating the Ukrainian political leadership. So how does this end? How can this end? Uh, uh, this strikes me as, as a case where it's a matter of the balance of forces on both sides. And 
and what their capacity to sustain a, a long conflict and to make progress. And at this point, and when you say it progress, seems, let me interrupt you. When you say progress, you, progress means taking back land, taking back areas well, seized. Ukraine wants to take back land, and Russia hasn't given up, I should say, Putin, because when we talk about Russia, we're talking about Putin. And nobody else seems to have any voice in the matter that we could tell. But Putin seems determined to take. Uh, a large part of the Ukrainian of Ukraine's Black Sea coast, including Odessa, he, from what we could tell, he hasn't given up his uh, goal of of taking the, the entire southern coast of Ukraine and all of the Donbas region. Uh, uh, on the other hand, the the Ukrainians have this intention goal, as you said, to drive all of the Russians out of all of Ukraine, including in, 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 including Crimea. Uh, my guess, my sense is that neither side has the capacity to achieve their maximum goals. I don't think Ukraine has the capacity without Western intervention to achieve its ultimate goal of driving all of the Russians out of all of Ukraine. And I don't think Russia has the capacity at this point. Uh, Mr. Putin isn't willing apparently to call to, to call this a war and to uh, institute a draft, a full scale draft to get the manpower he would need to crush the Ukrainian military. So it's a question, it seems to me, about who, who will, you know, at what point will the two sides conclude that they can't get any further? And, and at that point, I believe there'll be a, a ceasefire and not a peace agreement, just a, a standing in place agreement of some sort. This is where the, Korea is today. You know, to give another example, there is no peace between the U.S. and North Korea or South Korea, North Korea. There is only a demilitarized zone and a ceasefire. And we've never sat down with the North Koreans and, and signed a peace agreement. And it's been 50 years. How many? It's 70 years. Uh, I, I suspect we will reach a point, you know, where both sides can't go any further, and and uh, there will be uh, they'll just uh, reach agreement to to stand in place like that. So there won't be, or there isn't, a necessity for these two sides to sit down at a table or for there to be some sort of shuttle diplomacy reaching an agreement, there has to be a, well, a, an agreement, one agreement, which is we'll stop fighting today or tomorrow or next week and whoever has whatever land they have at that point, that's where the uh, hostilities, the overt military hostilities will, see, will end, will cease. But there won't be an agreement about what happens to the land, what happens to uh, Ukraine and its uh, relationship with Russia. Uh, that won't have to happen. We're not going to see, you know, arguments about, uh, well, arguments or, or diplomacy going on in that regard. Is that generally right? I didn't say it very well, but is that generally right? That's that's what I picture. That's the kind of relationship we have with North Korea and, and South Korea has with North Korea. So something like that. Yes, I, I, I suspect that the Turks under Erdogan are already have in place a mechanism uh, to, to make this happen. There have been talks uh, in Turkey, in Istanbul, between Russian and Ukrainian negotiators that have hashed out what something like this might look like. So, you, you know, there's there's a architecture sort of in place for, for this to happen. But I don't think Zelensky and Putin are ever going to shake hands and say, uh, we agree on this. It, it's 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 there, there will there will be a front line manned by troops. 
um, and, and it'll just stay that way. And that uh, but may, the fighting will stop. And that may be, in your opinion, I don't mean to put, I, well, let me ask it. In your opinion, are we talking about weeks, months, years? What's your best estimate? Uh, uh, I would say months, but I could be terribly wrong about this. Everybody has been wrong about this up until now, so I, I wouldn't want to say. Uh, I, I think that the offensive, the counteroffensive that Zelensky and the Ukrainians are undertaking now is very significant. If, if they can, uh, you know, I, I think they have the capacity to push the Russians back in places. Uh, but at, at at a certain point, their their capacity. They, I don't believe, but I don't believe they have the capacity to drive all the Russians out of all of Ukraine. So it's at some point, um, their their force will meet an iron wall of resistance, and they'll have to stop. And you know that's the point at which um, this kind of a non-agreement agreement might occur. And just to make sure that I understand. Did you say that there is this back-channel way through Erdogan for Ukraine and Russia to actually have some negotiations, and that exists, that architecture exists, that structure is in place? I believe so. I mean, there have been, there have been such talks before in Istanbul, uh, uh, where they, you know, where they kind of each side laid out what what it thought it's uh, an agreement should look like. They've passed these back and forth. I think Turkish diplomats have, you know, tried to cut and paste between the two sides what a, what a final agreement might look like. Um, uh, Erdogan has has spoken with both leaders repeatedly, uh, so. And and has played a role in in uh, uh, in various points. So you know that that's that's my suspicion. I have no evidence for this except what's publicly known. We're going to leave it there. We've been speaking with Michael Clare, Hampshire College Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies, defense correspondent for The Nation magazine, and as we've noted many times, prolific author on these issues. Michael Clare, thank you so much for being back with us, and thank you for being with us throughout this well, just terrifying and just extraordinary war and event that is going on. Thank you so much. A pleasure. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Residents gathered with signs in front of City Hall for the demand accountability and racial justice protest in Greenfield last night. Protesters were angry about Mayor Wiedegardner reinstating Police Chief Haig. We demand a real investigation into what's been going on in the Greenfield PD. We demand a police chief that we can trust. We demand justice and we demand accountability. And we want Mayor Wiedergartner to know that we are not going to get quiet and we are not going to go away until we get it. Right? Yeah. Mayor Wiedegardner released a statement as the protest was beginning, saying she agrees with citizens exercising their rights to assemble, express their opinion, and petition their government. A Winchenden man charged with putting substances into the gas tanks of several cars in shopping plaza parking lots will serve three years probation. Alexander Yee pleaded guilty to four charges of malicious damage to a motor vehicle. Yee was arrested in November of 2021 after a passerby informed staff at the Big Y in Southampton that he'd seen a man putting a substance into the gas tank of a vehicle parked outside the store. All the cars Yee attempted to disable belonged to women. There are 3.5 million free at-home COVID-19 rapid antigen tests available to Massachusetts residents. The tests are expected to be delivered to municipalities to make available to residents across the Commonwealth. In addition to tests, a request for essential PPE, such as KN95, and surgical and children's masks can be made by municipalities. All allocations are expected to be based on population size. Hi, I'm Nick Oresco. After a good amount of sunshine this afternoon and evening, we will be mostly clear overnight with temps in the mid to upper 50s. Tomorrow is looking good with mostly sunny skies and temps in the upper 70s to right around 80. I'm Nick Oresco on 101.5 WHMP. 
This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El senador de Massachusetts, John Billis, y la representante Patricia Duffy anunciaron el miércoles que 150 mil dólares en fondos ARPA han sido asignados para el programa de subsidios empresariales latinos de Partners for Community Inc. en Holyoke. El senador Billis y la representante Duffy se reunieron en Fiesta Café en Holyoke con su propietario, Juan Montano, así como la directora ejecutiva de la Cámara de Comercio de Holyoke, Jordan Hart, y con Verónica García en representación de la Cámara de Comercio Latina de Partners for Community. Community Inc. para hacer el anuncio. García también anunció que el nuevo nombre de la Cámara Latina de Comercio es el Consejo Latino de Desarrollo Económico. Estos 150 mil dólares en fondos ARPA ayudarán a los negocios propiedad de latinos en Holyoke, en particular a aquellos que se han visto afectados negativamente por la pandemia de COVID-19. En otras informaciones, un juez federal le dio al Departamento de Justicia de Estados Unidos y a los abogados de Donald Trump hasta el viernes para elaborar una lista de posibles candidatos para servir como maestro especial para revisar los registros que el FBI incautó del inmueble del expresidente en Florida. Pero encontrar personas que tengan la experiencia necesaria y las autorizaciones de seguridad para manejar los documentos altamente clasificados, así como la voluntad de entrar en el fuego político que rodea la investigación, no será una tarea fácil, dijeron expertos legales. La firma de abogados sin fines de lucro National Security Counselors proporcionó la semana pasada a la Corte una lista de cuatro posibles candidatos con experiencia en privilegios ejecutivos. Desde entonces, los cuatro han hecho comentarios públicos que sugieren que no quieren el trabajo o que los abogados del Departamento de Justicia o Trump podrían usar para argumentar en su contra. Yo soy Johan Rashivega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We will have coming up in just a few moments our Reverend and the Rabbi segment with Rabbi Justin David. And, well, but first I'd like to go back to it's not yesterday's news. It's kind of today's news. Well, it is front it's page. It's mostly Tuesday's news, but well, confirmed yesterday and talked well, about today and on the front page of the paper today. Indeed. That's why we call it a fish wrap. <laughs> today's newspapers. <laughs> tomorrow's fish wrap. Indeed. So, front page, Kaylane prevails over two rivals, Dateline, Hampshire County. Incumbent secures 48% of vote in Democratic primary for sheriff advances unopposed to general election, this by Scott Merzbach. Democrats in Hampshire County nominated Sheriff Patrick Kalane for a second term on Tuesday in a three-way primary race that pitted the incumbent against a corrections nurse and the state's corrections education specialist, both of whom once worked for his administration. Well, this is a long sentence, but it has a lot of information and criticized his priorities and leadership on the campaign trail. Kaylane, a Leeds resident, collected 11,052 votes, 48.1%, according to the AP tabulations, with 96% of the votes ca counted. Challengers Yvonne Gittleson of Goshen and Caitlin Cepeda of South Hadley nearly spit, split the remaining votes, Gittleson getting 6,117, or 26.6%, and Cepeda 5,817, or 25.3%. Together, They denied uh, Pat Kaylane a majority of the votes. Again, he received 48.1% of the votes, not a majority, uh, leading, I think, to some speculation of what would have happened if those two women had combined forces and one of them had not been in the race, something we are never going to know the no. answer to. Uh, it was a race that was actually uh, not as close as I thought it would be given all, I think, the bad publicity that the sheriff received over the two weeks preceding the primary. Um, I do think it shows that he has an enormous reservoir of support and that there is an understanding that he has run a jail that has been safe, that has been progressive, um, notwithstanding these uh, reports that were I think, disturbing, justifiably, to a lot of people. Those reports being that there were uh, accusations that a vehicle that was ostensibly from the sheriff's department with government plates was driving by other employees of the jail who had signs out for 
candidates other than the sheriff taking photographs, a little bit of intimidation, also missing signs. And I'm assuming that investigation is going to continue because even though the primary... This was a high-ranking official at the jail who has resigned uh, in direct response to those reports. And there was another very disturbing letter in the uh, Gazette about uh, a former uh, person incarcerated at the jail uh, who said he was making furniture for officials at the jail, um, being paid some 15 cents an hour, and not being allowed to teach these skills to other inmates as well. Um, uh, we have not had a response as far as I know to that, and we'll, we'll, I think that's another matter that's obviously is going to have to be addressed. That said, um, 48% of the vote... I, I, here's something is, is substantial, I think, particularly given all of that uh, bad publicity right at the end of the race, and something I did read today in the Gazette that I had forgotten about, that there was a contested election last time, and uh, Sheriff Kaling received about 58% of the vote in total, and he had two challengers there in the general election as well. So uh, this is a fall-off from what happened six years ago, but I think under all these circumstances a showing for the sheriff that uh, was, was substantial and impressive from an electoral point of view. The other, uh, okay, difference between what happens tomorrow's, tomorrow's, tomorrow's fish wrap indeed, the front page of the Republican, nobody saw this coming. Big headline. Um, not as big in Hampshire County. Jacobs wins four-way governor's council primary uh, Tara Jacobs, a North Adams School Committee member, has earned the Democratic nomination to be the region's representative to the Governor's Council. I didn't see it coming. I don't I think any of us did. And I, even yesterday on the show, the day after the actual election, we were watching updated results as we were live on the air because it still wasn't all fully counted yet. And there was a 100-vote margin at the beginning of the show that was down to a 20-vote margin by the end of the show. How did it eventually shake out? Well, the votes from Pittsfield came in where she won uh, uh, by a large, large majority, and I won with a majority of some 2,500 to 3,000 votes. It wasn't all that close at the end. Uh, she she won. Uh, Tara Jacobs won. She's the one person in the race. She's the only woman in the race, which was very helpful to her, uh, the only non-lawyer. By her admission, actually. She was like running on that as one of the uh, uh, one of her issues when we had her on just yes, before the yeah, election. Yes, I'm the only woman in this race. You should vote for me on account of that. Um, we need to uh, uh, maintain uh, gender equity on the governor's council. Um, that was one of her uh, platforms. And, and there was a letter to the Gazette recently said, vote for her for exactly that reason. I mean, she's the only non-lawyer running, was the only non-lawyer running the race, and the only one who has absolutely no experience in the criminal justice or the civil justice uh, arena at all. Um, but uh, people, I, I think that was uh, very helpful for her that she was the only woman. And the, as the Republican point out today, the other candidates cannibalized the vote in, in Hamden County, and she picked up votes throughout Hampshire and Franklin and Berkshire County and won. But I think there is this appeal to an outsider kind of bringing in a new perspective to things, and sometimes that can be refreshing. Other times, you could be, say, a television host and a failed businessman and be an outsider and then become president, and it doesn't go so well. Right. So I'm not saying that that's no, the, the she, likely that, outcome of this election, right. but it, uh, very interesting that somebody who will be picking judges or approving judges is uh, has no real experience working with these judges. We're going to leave it there. We're going to be back with the rabbi right after this. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday highbrow? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Highbrow Wood-Fired Kitchen and Bar is one of the exciting restaurant experiences in downtown Northampton. Highbrow features cutting-edge American food and the best wood-fired pizza in town. Meatball pie, chev, and truffle mushroom. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. 586-1000. Good phone number, right? It's the number Whalen Insurance got when we opened in 1961. It's still our number more than 60 years later. If you need an insurance quote or have a claim, just call 586-1000. We answer the phone, ready to help. That's our pledge to you. Until now. Now when you call, 
we'll answer. And if it's something clerical or routine, like an address change, we're going to transfer you to the Arbella Insurance Call Center in Quincy. You'll be connected with a real person there, too. You won't be entering your policy number on the dial pad. The Arbella Call Center. I told myself Whalen Insurance would never do this, but insurance agent friends all over New England tell me it actually works really well. So we're going to try it. And if it doesn't work well, I'm sure you'll let us know by calling 586-1000. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Arbella Insurance. When somebody dies, even if it's somebody old or somebody sick and the family is expecting it, it's still a shock. For the past 110 years, the Saluzniak family has opened the doors to their home for generations of Hampshire, Hamden, and Franklin County families, offering comfort and guidance when it's needed most. There's a certain assurance from knowing that for 110 years, four generations have offered caring help with honesty, integrity, understanding, and the highest standards. The Saluzniak family wants you to know they understand things may have changed, but their dedication to helping your loved ones in your time of loss has never wavered and it never will. They are here for you taking every precaution and will help you understand how you can pay tribute during this challenging time. Saluzniak Funeral Home up at North Street, Northampton. Oh, people have always had a hard time saying Saluzniak. It seems that the CZ always gets everybody. Saluzniak Funeral Home, Northampton. They're not easy to spell, but they are CZ to spell. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. So this is Massachusetts way of saying, we think it's an important program. We think it's important enough to continue for students and their families. And we're going to put the money up front to make sure it continues so that if the federal government does not renew it, Massachusetts will still have universal school meals. 1015, 1400 and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And this is our usual Thursday Reverend and the Rabbi segment we have with us today, our usual uh, rabbi, Rabbi Justin David, although we have other rabbis on this segment as well from time to time. Rabbi, uh, we, we were, we were, we're going to talk about the standing together against racism and anti-Semitism in just a minute, but I think we should bring in our listeners to the conversation that we actually were having during the break, and that is about suffering, and in particular, your suffering as a New York Mets fan. So <laughs> spend one minute, you know, sort of work, work this through for us in a public and public kind of way and tell us how, how you feel about baseball and whether or not all of these years of suffering will finally come to an end for you personally and your Mets. Yeah, well, I came to a reckoning many years ago. Why do I stay a Mets fan? Why do I stay a baseball fan? It's not because of the owners. It's not because the players who wear the jerseys. It's the fan base. And in New York, the Mets are the team of peace and justice because they're from Flushing. And the original fan base of, of the New York Mets were dejected Dodgers and Giants fans and working class and immigrant families who lived in Queens. And, you know, you don't want to root for the evil empire, except if you're from the Bronx. If you're from the Bronx and, you, and you're a Yankee fan, that's legit. But if you're from Great Neck or Roslyn, you know, or Babylon, you know, unless your parents were from the Bronx, you have no business being a Yankee fan. That, so that being said, you know, the Mets <laughs> at least are... you, At least you, I was going to say, uh, really, tell us how you feel. Stop yeah. holding back. Yeah. But, but... Um, you know, but what I what I love about about tuning in is the story arc, and you know, one of one of something that's uniquely Metzian is that you have uh, a decent amount of money, excellent players and excellent teams, and um, underperformance usually in the most bizarre and unpredictable of ways. But this year, it's been the opposite. Everything has come together with um, a really admirable bunch of players and leading the way are the two, you know, outs two best pitchers in baseball of this era, Max Scherzer, who has one brown eye and one blue eye and Jacob deGrom, who uh, throws a baseball like he's from another planet. And to watch him is like watching Barishnikov. 
and um, and I love that. And you know, win or lose, it almost doesn't matter, but winning is better. And um, <laughs> you know, it's it's all about it's all about the storyline. And uh, you know, we'll we'll see what happens. Even in defeat, there can be great stories, as we saw with Serena, the great Serena Williams. She wow. she was she lost the game, but she she won. She won her hearts. Her, she won the moment. She did. She did. That was yeah. very. That was very eloquent. Thank you, Justin. Okay, I'd like to turn to uh, standing together against racism yeah. and anti-Semitism. Uh, your congregation, your shul, Congregation B'nai Israel, is a co-sponsor of this event. Uh, we have spoken on the show with two of the sponsors, uh, uh, organizers of the event. Um, but I think it's important that uh, CBI, Congregation B'nai Israel, is a sponsor, co-sponsor, and I'd like you to tell us why and what you... Well, what's, we should bring our uh, listeners yeah. in, into this conversation. We're not uh, with us for th- for that uh, conversation earlier this week. What is Standing Together Against Racism and Anti-Semitism? And then we'll get to why is CBI a co-sponsor of this event? Well, this is, this is um, a conversation that our community has per- been pursuing for years. Uh, the idea that in... Um, in being an anti-racist community and in being allies uh, in combating uh, racism and um, xenophobia and, and all forms of oppression, uh, we need to understand the role of anti-Semitism. And there's been a lot of work done on this. Uh, we've seen a rise in anti-Semitic incidents over the past several years. Uh, the, tree, the, the murder from the Tree of Life synagogue massacre uh, expressed not only anti-Semitic views, but racist views and xenophobic, view, xenophobic views. And, and, um, and we need to understand the ways all of these uh, forms of hatred uh, play together and then how to um, combat them. And so we have as our speaker for the evening, a very interesting woman named Yavila McCoy, who's nationally known as an organizer and speaker, and she herself is uh, African-American and Jewish um, and tries to weave in um, these strategies because in the public mind, they're often separate. Um, And, you know, there may be reasons for that, but more to the point, um, there's a sense that, um, you know, that uh, when we think of anti-Semitism, when we think of the Jewish community, uh, there's a lot of subtlety uh, into who um, who's represented, and uh, Yavila McCoy, I think, will um, bring forward uh, a picture that makes us all understand how we're bound up in uh, expressions of hatred um, and structures of hatred uh, against each other. And so I just want to take a moment uh, just to uh, sort of, um, in a way that kind of reveals our collective intention behind this. I, I, I just want to sort of survey the organizations that we're partnering with for this event. So uh, we're co-sponsoring this with Arise Springfield, uh, Critical Connections, which brings issues of Muslim concern to the broader community, Bridge for Unity, Sojourner Truth School, um, Self-Evident Education. And I think we all understand that um, you know the structure of one form of hatred is the structure of another. And to undo it, we have to confront uh, the forms of hatred that may have an impact on us directly, uh, but also uh, indirectly. I I know, Rabbi, that you have made significant efforts to try to uh, bring uh, persons of color who are members of your congregation um, into this discussion to and have CBI be an open and welcoming uh, community for persons of uh, all uh, ethnic and racial backgrounds. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit more about what efforts specifically you have made and how they have been greeted by your congregation. Yeah. Uh, Well, everything has been uh, enormously positive. But going back probably about six or seven years, maybe a little bit more, you know, there was an there was an intentional decision, not only to trust that we stand for um, for uh, connecting with uh, diverse voices within and outside of our community, 
but um, that we make it explicit. And so the way we started uh, is, uh, was very much in the comfort zone of the community, which is to have conversations. And, um, and there were a number of things that, that came up. One was that uh, there were all kinds of questions that we had to reckon with uh, about what it meant to be uh, a good ally. That to be a good ally, one first has to understand what other people actually want and whether what other people actually want is something we can actually provide. Um, so it's not for us that we're allies. Uh, it's not for only for us that we're allies, but for the people who um, want or would benefit from our allyship if they if they want that. Um, but the but another piece was that we had to understand um, the ways in which anti-Semitism works, the way it's historically worked, and the way it's working now. And all this co coincided with uh, the 2016 uh, election of Donald Trump, in which um, uh, anti-Semitism played a noticeable role in his election, the rhetoric leading up to the election, stuff with you know global elitists and the dog whistles about George Soros and all the rest. That's part of the white supremacist rhetoric. Um, and then the next step, or another important step, was to do a self-examination. And because historically, the Jewish community has been Ashkenazic and white, uh, and or at least that's how we've seen ourselves. And um, we need to take a look at that and see how that has never been the case it's changing rapidly and it's going to continue to change. And that means a change in our internal culture. And all of these ideas have been pursued by the community um, really vigorously. Um, we can also talk about reparations too, which is, an act, which is something that we're actively pursuing. Um, and if there's you know, time either We have 30 or, seconds. You want to tell us about the efforts on reparations? Or we have had a reparations working group for years now uh, studying the issue of reparations, Jewish community and Jewish traditions role in reparations, and how we may play an active part in, um, uh, in uh, participating in reparations to Black and Native communities. We're going to leave it there. We've been speaking with Rabbi Justin David from Congregation B'nai Israel in Northampton. Rabbi, thanks for being with us every week. We really appreciate it. is Bill Newman, WHMP. Gordon Oliver here, and if you don't know me, I'm the host of the weekly Saturday show, The Cambridge Connection, on WHMP.com and wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. For the last year, I've been privileged to connect you, our listeners, with experts from a variety of financial industries and organizations that offer assistance and education to help everyone become more financially fit. See you on Saturday. Happy one-year anniversary. Join Gordy, Tina Marie, and guest Christopher Vialli as they celebrate one year of The Cambridge Connection here on WHMP. Would you like a better world? It's as easy as grabbing a hammer and building a home. Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity builds strength, stability, and self-reliance through affordable home ownership in Hampshire and Franklin County. It's not a handout, it's a hand up. Habitat homes are built with donations of material, land, and services. Future homeowners and volunteers create a partnership with Habitat for Humanity to build a home, strengthen our neighborhoods, and create a legacy for our community. Help transform the world. Volunteer and support Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity. TV Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station. It's